Hello listeners, before we begin this episode we've got some exciting news for you. We're doing our first live show at this year's London Podcast Festival in King's Cross on Saturday 14th of September at 12.30pm, 12.30 midday. We'll be joined by not one but two special guests, Helen Zaltzman and Martin Alstwick, who you'll know from The Illusionist, Song by Song and Antsimidis Podcasts. And yes, it's the same Martin who wrote our lovely theme music. I'm very excited to be chatting to them on stage at the Pod Fest. We will watch their chosen film together on the big screen and have a chat about their choice during the podcast recording at the end of the movie. The film is yet to be confirmed, so keep an eye on our social media channels. Tickets are only 9.50, an absolute bargain, and are available now from kingsplace.co.uk. The link is in the show notes. That's Saturday, 14th September, 12.30, midday. See you there! Hello, I'm Sam Clement, and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. This is a podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime and is entirely curated by guests on this podcast. Today, we're joined by writer, director, and Star Wars The Last Jedi cast member Joe Cornish. Welcome, Joe. Thanks very much. I'm pleased you've given my full CV there. Well, it was important, you know. With the most important roles so prominently stated. He's called. He's one of the only characters in the Star Wars universe that's actually named after the actor who portrays him. It's obviously a very famous and powerful character and role, so thanks for mentioning it. I was lucky enough to go to a fancy preview of that film, and when we spotted you on screen, me and my seatmate, Simon Renshaw, pod colleague, we like looked at you and went, oh my god! <laughs> I think that's the, uh, you're the only people who've A, seen me, and B, reacted. Where was your fancy preview? It was at the Royal Albert Hall. I was there as well. Oh, that was the premiere, right? It was. It was weird on stage that all the filmmakers and the the producers are accompanied by stormtroopers. Yes. <laughs> so you think, wow, was this film actually made by the evil empire or the rebels? I think it was made, I think the Star Wars franchise has been taken over by the evil em- empire on the evidence of the premiere. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they were, they were everywhere. Benevolent people. You couldn't get a seat for the empire. It's really nice to have you on the podcast, Joe, because not only have you chosen a film, which we will talk about, you've actually made a 90-minute or less movie. I did, yeah. My first film, Attack the Block, is 86 minutes, even though I think we lied on the DVD box. I remember when we put the running time on the DVD box, I I said, ah, you know, sod it, just make it 90. (laughs) Or make it, is it 83 and does it say 85 on the box? The screenplay was 90 minutes, 90 pages. Right. And the rule is a page a minute, right? So I really wanted to make a 90-minute movie because I think when they're good, they're very. it's a very satisfying length. But Jonathan Amos, the editor, he cut it so tight Oof. in the end that it, it ran at about 82 or 83 minutes. And I felt really bad about it, weirdly. I thought, man, I've, I've kind of failed. There's not enough story. But then I went home and made a list of movies under 90 minutes. I'd never really thought about it before. And when you look at movies that are under 90 minutes, as you've been doing on this podcast. It's a pretty incredible roster, everything from Paths of Glory to Spinal Tap to Stand By Me. Like movies you never realized were that short because they are thematically, story-wise, and structurally satisfying. 
Yeah. And you forget about a running time of a movie. You know, something I remember like, I remember seeing Dances with Wolves at the cinema and being impressed about how that just whizzed by mm. back in the 1920s or whenever that was. So it's weird, isn't it? When you're absorbed in a story, you stop sensing its length. You're just interested in its effect. Absolutely. I'm, I'm one of the reasons we started this was realizing that a lot of films that I really love are under in a, you know, what's considered a short feature, but they have the emotional heft of, you know, something that could be two and a half hours mm. or whatever. And, and it's like, that's really good storytelling to take that character and, and for you to go on that journey with them and feel really satisfied at the end. And uh, it's sort of a celebration, really, of, of artists who are working in a, in a tighter runtime. <laughs> Definitely. And there's also physiological advantages to it in terms of being able to sit comfortably for a limited amount of time. If you watch a movie with a group of people, which I know a lot of us do, mm-hmm. and you're all sitting around or it's the end of an evening, it's like 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. and you want to watch a movie, then a 90 minute is or a sub 90 minute is a really good choice. Because it's light on the palate, isn't it? It's like small plates in a restaurant. It's fish and chips when you get like a lovely square of fish rather than the whole thing with the tail and the head that extends beyond the perimeter of the plate. (laughs) The the, the, the gold standard of the Yeah, and a lovely little Jenga stack of chips rather than a huge (laughs) bucket of them. Someone actually mentioned Attack the Block when we, we did an end-of-the-year roundup where people were sort of doing very quick reviews of films they might want to choose. But one of the questions that our guest said was, I know Joe's got a new film coming out, The Kid Will Be King. I hope that's 90 minutes or less too. Well, I went the other way. I, and, and, and in fact, I think actually I might have overcompensated for my insecurity about the brevity of Attack the Block by going... Because Kid Will Be King is two hours pretty much on the button. Mm. And some of the reviews... Like there was a review in the Sunday Times last weekend that said rambling. It was a very positive review. It said, you know, Joe Cornish is exciting, uplifting, Arthurian adventure, dot, 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 occasionally rambling. And (laughs) so, like, I think next time I will try and go between the two. But then I was like looking at movies that are two hours and E.T. is two hours and one minute. And E.T. weirdly feels like a shorter film, mm. I think. You wouldn't anticipate that it ran that as long as... Because Star Wars is two hours three or four, I think. Yeah, they're all just slightly over two hours, I think. Yeah, which is weird because I, I, I thought that was a modern phenomenon. I sort of thought movies had got generally longer, which I think they mm. have. I think your your more typical sort of tentpoles, maybe franchise installments that come out over summer, they seem to be aiming for two hours and 20. Yeah. If you look at your Marvel films, pretty much all of them are... Uh, we're recording just, just before the new Spider-Man film comes out. It's mm. two hours, 20, bang on, and mm. there's, a, there's a lot of those. I think two hours for sort of a, a, a sweeping adventure film, that also makes sense. Like, I sort of wouldn't want The Kid Will Be King to be 80 minutes long. I think I'd want it to feel like an adventure, an epic film. Well, you're very kind. Certainly when we test screened it to little kids, which when you make a studio movie, you do, you obviously test screen the living heck out of everything. Mm. People fill in, you know, complicated forms where they uh, respond in detail to every aspect of the film. And then there are these big companies that, that, that crunch those statistics and give feedback to the studio and the studio take it very seriously and give you as a filmmaker notes on how to sculpt it so at no point did we get that message sort of strongly from those test screenings but you know different strokes for different folks when we got in touch to ask you to do this podcast Mm. we asked you to choose a 90 minute or less film how did you go about choosing a film did you have something in mind you're like oh i know the runtime already or did you have to do a bit of research 
I know a lot of the runtimes just because of my attack the block problems. <laughs> so I've got a little list. I had a little list in my head then that because I thought, oh, people are going to ask me about this during the publicity. So I better have some good short movies up my sleeve. But nobody did, in fact. Nobody cared about it. In fact, it became a plus point. Oh. But yes, yeah, so I didn't have to... I, I did pop on the internet and have a look and see whether there was anything I missed. And also I wanted to choose something that nobody had done before on your podcast. So, but I've settled for Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 2. Evil Dead 2, 84 minutes long. It's one of my favourite back-of-the-DVD blurbs we've had on the show. After the shocking and notorious cult classic, The Evil Dead impaled its way into the minds of a whole generation, visionary maverick director Sam Raimi decided to elaborate on its twisted scenario, featuring B-movie legend Bruce Campbell in his most iconic role, Evil Dead 2 is a gore-fueled slapstick masterpiece that gleefully stomps on the entrails of good taste whilst puking in the face of Hollywood with no apologies. Oh, it's exhausting. That Most coffee. people apologise after they puke in the face of Hollywood. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's got an upset stomach. Sorry, Hollywood. <laughs> Raimi didn't. He's not having it. He was proud to puke in the He'll face puke of puke on anybody. <laughs> he will puke on anybody. This is a very exciting piece of blurb on, on the back of the DVD. It doesn't really talk so much about the plot, but I think there's an emotional sort of resonance it leaves with you. As a, as a filmmaker, do people run the back of the, the, the box sort of blurb by you? I've written the back oh, have you? cover blurb on both of my movies. Yeah. Oh, amazing. <laughs> I have. Well, I definitely wrote it on Attack the Block. They, they, give, they propose you a block of text and then you can tweak it if you want to. I mean, I think it's up to the filmmaker the degree to which they get involved in that mm. stuff. But we got very involved in Kitty Would Be King. We I, we really got in there and, and tried to tweak everything. And the same with Attack the Block. They they did a, actually a really nice job with that. Often there are just spelling mistakes. You've got to check. Yeah. Like, I'm a stickler for that kind of thing. And you spend, when you make a film, you spend so much time kind of pouring over detail and trying to get every tiny little thing right. Mm. By the time you come to do the home video, which happens, it's sort of the last thing you do in the post-production process. Mm. And it all happens at once. It's it's really sort of very densely packed, your experience of making a film. And you don't have enough time to do anything, and it all happens at once. But by the time the home video release comes out, you're in that mindset of, of being very pedantic. So I agree with you. I think it's important to get grammar Correct. <laughs> and apostrophes correct. Correct grammar, correct apostrophes. Like spelling the actors' names correctly. Yeah. All of that stuff is yeah. very it's very nice. It's also the first thing, if someone is in a DVD shop, there's still a few of those left. First thing they see is the cover, and the second thing they'll see is the back of the box. So you yep. just have, you know, people's first and second impressions of your movie, you know, yes. the best they can possibly be. I agree completely. I do think, however, with The Evil Dead 2, it might, just to talk about the plot, might need to talk about it in a little bit more detail, because for all the hyperbole, there's not a great amount of detail on, on this one. What I totally forgot rewatching this film, how how it starts, because it is sort of a very brief retelling of the Evil Dead. Do you know more about why why that's at the start of the film? I do. Yeah, he didn't have the rights, I think, to the original movie for some reason, and also I think the original movie shot on sixteen. Ah, yes. Whereas yeah, yeah. I think Evil Dead Two is on thirty five. But I think it's mainly to do with the rights. He he made a movie called Crime Wave after he made Evil Dead One. And I think he expected it to be a bigger hit than it was, mm. and it wasn't. He'd already written a screenplay for Evil Dead 2, so I think he sort of put that in motion. So it's there as a kind of cool recap for people who haven't seen the first movie, 
which was possible at the time, because particularly in the UK, it had a very troubled distribution history. Was it one of the, the video nasties? It was one of the video <laughs> nasties. It was a sort of Mary Whitehouse cause celebra, and it was really the victim of just idiotic conservative government, mm. reactionary, moral panicky policies and the Obscene Publications Act. That's a whole other thing. But it's a fascinating sort of period of just, like when you look back on it from this day and age, of just utter pig-headed stupidity mm. that you can kind of correlate with what they're attempting to do now with certain areas of the internet. Absolutely, the, the famous porn block. Yeah, <laughs> just sort of completely wrong-headed mm. policy-making. Anyway, so, so there were a lot of people in the UK who weren't able to see Evil Dead 1. Not that that would be why he put his recap in. Yeah, I think they were hoping to make it a, a, a bigger theatrical success, so they wanted to bring everybody up to speed. And of course, the story in Evil Dead 2 picks up from the end of Evil Dead 1, so it's important to know what happened before in the cabin of horror. If you're watching Evil Dead 2 in a sort of a self-contained sort of space, it makes total sense. I, a couple of years ago, there was a remake of Evil Dead, which Sam Raimi mm. produced, directed by Fede Alvarez, and I did a marathon of 1, 2, and 3. When you watch Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 back-to-back, it's it's a bit jarring. Why so? <laughs> because you if you have the whole film for about 80 or so minutes, the Evil Dead. The whole Evil Dead trilogy is less than 90 minutes long as well, which is a joy, each mm. film. None mm. of them are longer. Mm. Evil Dead 2 is the longest, I think. But yeah, so you see, you, see, you know... 80 minutes of Bruce in the cabin doing all that stuff with his girlfriend and then you go to Evil Dead 2 and then you see it all again but in five minutes. But <laughs> and, and different, right? Because a couple of cast members are missing mm. and it looks nicer, doesn't it? It, it looks, looks a hell of a lot nicer. Yeah. You're right, the, the 35mm photography, I think they've really managed to sort of buff up over the years and preserve and, and it looks so crisp. Not, not that that is what you're looking for in an Evil Dead movie. This is true. <laughs> I mean, what's incredible about both the movies but particularly the second one is is just this smorgasbord of technique. Mm. It's got more different techniques in it than I think, you know, I don't know, I don't want to say something hyperbolic, but it's got a lot of different techniques in it. Stop motion, miniatures, cloud tanks, mm. puppetry, prosthetics, tilting the set on its side, you know, just every possible inventive, hands-on thing you could possibly do. And... The other joy of it is that it's one location, like one, two, three, four, five actors. Yeah. yeah. And you, it just feels like something you could do with your friends. Yeah, no, absolutely. If you had friends that were committed enough. That's the joy of Evil Dead 1. And I think in Evil Dead 1, it did come down to just Sam and Bruce mm. on their own. Everyone else buggered off because they couldn't deal with it anymore. Wow. And it, it And it was Sam and Bruce and the camera and maybe a few other people who were really hardcore. just cut up our girlfriend with a chainsaw. Does that sound fine? <laughs> do you remember when you first saw Evil Dead, do you? I do. I saw it at the Scala. So the Scala Cinema had a special preview of it in 1987. Oh, yeah. And me and Adam Buxton and our American friend... Chad Arkenklass, who was an American exchange student. I think we were just dabbling in hashish. We were fans of Thomas De Quincey, and we started a hashish club. That's not true. We were just idiots, <laughs> idiot, late teenagers. So I think we were a bit stoned, 
And we went to this big preview screening at the Scala in a packed house. And for our generation, the Evil Dead one was notorious. It had never really been theatrically released. And if it was, we were too young to see it. And mm. it was censored. Yes. So to be in a cinema, to see an, a new Evil Dead movie in Britain in 1987 was a sort of big cultural moment. It was a sort of a feeling of rebellion and transgression because you were seeing this notorious, iconic product on a big screen. The Scala was an incredibly atmospheric place. It always was, as, as you know. Mm. Um, the atmosphere in there was, was incredible. We were on grade B drugs. <laughs> <laughs> we were full of the spunk of youth, <laughs> if I can use that word. And so it was a really, really memorable trip to the cinema. And it is the most densely entertaining nonstop one of the things I love about it is the use of dry ice mm -hmm. and wind machines. It's like a movie set on a speeding locomotive because every time you look out of the windows, this smoke is rushing by as if the cabin is actually traveling. Mm. So the whole thing is so kinetic, has so much, you know, what's the word to it? So, I, I don't know, just forward propulsion to the, to the storytelling. So it was a, a really very memorable trip to the cinema. As I like the first movie I saw on VHS on a little telly during, I remember we bunked off school, me and my friend, and we got it from a video shop. And I was really frightened because it had this terrifying reputation as, mm. if, the, as if it was possessed or something. So to be a bit older, to be, a, to be in this big group of people to watch the sequel was brilliant. In the sequel, Sam Raimi and, and his co-writer, they, they sort of lean into the absurdity of it all. And it is a, it's got this amazing tone. It's, it is horrific and it's gory, but it's also funny. And it's like the, the blurb mentions a bit slapstick. It feels a bit like a cartoon. Like I think Bruce Campbell's character, Ash, is treated a bit like a cartoon character. It's like, what can we put him through next? And I love, there's a shot early in the film where he's flying through the trees. I think it's sort of bridging the gap between Evil Dead, the Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. And his character is sort of spinning against these trees. And it's it, already then, you know, you know, you sort of know this is going to be a heightened sense of fun. Yeah, that's an incredible shot, isn't it? He, I didn't listen. I should have listened to the commentary to find out how they did that. He's he's mounted to the camera or something. Yeah, and he's rotating. He's rotating, and the camera's moving through. I guess it's the, it's the speeded up because there's a lot of undercranking in the movie as well. Mm. I know what you mean. I mean, I found it scary. Mm. I think back in the day because the first movie had this this incredible reputation. You got to remember, I was only a child. I was like four, 13, 14 when the first movie came out and the world was a different place. You know, it was possible to limit people's access to horrific imagery. That sort of thing was much, much more controlled than it is now where you can see whatever you want, whenever you want in terms of grotesquery. And, mm. and it was a much more controlled feed of that sort of imagery. So when a movie like Evil Dead came out with with the reputation of it being banned and it was corruptive and it was shocking and that tagline that the ultimate experience in grueling terror and Stephen King's quote oh, yeah. that was all over it. Well, he was a big fan, wasn't he, of the well, Evil well, Dead? Well, he helped the Evil Dead 2 get made, right, I think. He called Dino De Laurentiis and said, oh, you've got to finance this movie. He was working on Maximum o Overdrive with course, De, yes. De Laurentiis at the time. But 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 I'm just trying to kind of communicate the cultural force mm. it had. So even at the time of its release, the second one came with that same feeling of trepidation and anticipation, and that you were going to see really 
hardcore shit and it does have some quite it delivers it, it really <laughs> delivers and, and you're right in retrospect now it seems very puppety and kind of meet the feebles and gibbery and gelatine and not hard but you know when we sat in that cinema it felt more like a kind of far out horror film mm. than it did a slapstick film but when you get to the bits like the possessed hand mm. and the all the chainsaw shit where it does start more than the first film stepping over that line into into high comedy it was so pleasurable because it was kind of like a release I think it's important though to mean in terms of the it's it's 84 minutes long and it feels like it's sort of firing on all cylinders from the get-go. But you're right, in terms of what Sam Raimi and the guys show us, it starts off with some quite horrific imagery with Ash's possessed girlfriend. and, and so, But then it does go into that moment. Where I, I love the sort of the, the relief you get when Ash is in the cabin on his own mm. and things start to get a little bit weird. First of all, he's possessed, of course, and then he breaks that. Then the rest of the house becomes possessed and the animals on the wall start talking. Yes. And there's this, one of my favourite shots in the film is when he's going maybe a little bit, a little bit crazy. Uh, there's an angle poised lamp which starts to move up and down. Mm. And Bruce Campbell sort of does the exact same movement. And because he's such a, he's such a, he's an amazing actor, but he's mm. got this amazing frame. Mm. And him doing an angle poised lamp impression really, really cracked me up the other day. It's really good, that bit, isn't it? But, um, <laughs> the sound work in the movie it is amazing. It really is a, 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 an incredible little film school, mm. I think, for anybody who's interested or starting out making short films with their friends or whatever, or a little feature just like I say, the the all the different techniques they're using and the resourcefulness with cause it's a low budget movie, mm. all set in pretty much one house. Just the resourcefulness with with the equipment they have and 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 the lo-fi technology they have. So for a lot of that stuff, they use an anamorphic lens, but but don't stretch it back out again. You know, an anamorphic lens compresses the image so mm. that you can then stretch it to make it widescreen. They stick an anamorphic lens on, but don't decompress it so everything is sort of distorted and they do this wonderful sort of sort of tilty curvy circular move on it mm. and the, the other to get tediously technical the other really interesting thing about the movie is eyelines yes because if you ever make a film you realize that eyelines are your master and each the, the 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 direction each character is looking in in every shot must connect to the connecting shots. So so it's a very kind of boring but ultra important thing when you're standing on a film set to make sure the eye lines are right. And just the eye just the eye line work in that movie is absolutely brilliant because there's often montages of super abstract shots, yeah. but you always know where everything is and where the characters are in relation to everything else. And if you broke that logic, none of that would work. So on a basic Le film language level it's really really on point even though they're doing these super bizarre different sorts of textures you know legend has it that it was written by the dark ones necronomicon ex mortis roughly translated book of the dead the book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond it was written long ago when the seas ran red with blood at the time when you saw it with your friends was this something that made you want to make short films were you already sort of thinking of making oh, films yeah, at that no, point? Me, in fact one of the first things me and Adam Buxton my comedy wife did <laughs> was go and do that I've got video of him doing the possessed hand thing oh, amazing yeah so we went back to his house and on his clunky old VHS video camera, we restaged that. And weirdly, watching it last night, I realized how much of it is in Kid Who Would Be King. 
Like Kitty Would Be King is sort of a horror film for kids. Mm. And it's got all the tree stuff in it. It's got the deadites in it. It's shot by Bill Pope, who shot Evil Dead 3. So I think subconsciously loads of the elements from Evil Dead 2 crept their way into The Kid Who Would Be King, even though it's for 10-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> a very different experience. Well, I was yeah. going to ask as well in, in Attack the Block, you have creatures which are, you know, they're, they're puppets. And yes. I wondered if that was wanting to sort of play with puppets on a larger scale was maybe inspired by things like Evil Dead 2. Yeah, I, d- I did a lot of that as, as a kid and a teenager, making little, having little puppet monsters and stuff. You couldn't really, I mean, anyone who went to the cinema in the 80s, you just had puppet monsters in your bloodstream, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whether it was critters or gremlins or the thing or, you know, and or you, were, uh, or you, you bought Fangoria or Starburst. That was the exciting, creative, artistic hands-on tactile pleasures of of going to the movies and you saw that you you know it was it was so gloriously sort of childish watching them as a 13 14 15 year old because that's what you did all the time at home anyway you made little things with your play people or plasticine or you know kids in that period we were all we'd watch blue peter and they'd make things and you're always making stuff and then to go and see a big hollywood movie and see and a, a sort of accelerated expression of that same handmade stuff really connected you to the to the to the craft you know made you think oh i could do this as well and as you say this film has it in almost every scene they're trying a new technique yeah stop motion loads of prosthetic stuff loads of really clever physics stuff i mean the other thing that's brilliant is the transitions in it are all brilliant like the spade coming into the lens mm. or a big burst of of smoke underlit so it just feels like a wipe the crazy POVs like those. being under the water in a sink when the water comes out of the tap mm. or the POV of the severed hand as it crawls across the floor in these sort of lurching movements just the creativity again it's almost like do you know bresson the so a man escaped Mm -hmm. like one of there's an amazing french film called a man escape which is all set in a prison cell and it sort of it sort of gives the it, it articulates the argument for things that are cinematic not being to do with scale or beautiful landscape shots to be cinematic is about building a a visual sequence wherever you are and a man escaped is sort of brilliant because it's one guy in a prison cell, yet it's the most cinematic bit of storytelling you can imagine. His, the tiny little slither of view he gets of the prison yard, mm. trying to carve this hole in the wall with a spoon. It's so cinematic, but yet it's on such a small scale. The same could be said of Evil Dead 2 that's incredibly cinematic, even though it's five people, a cabin, and not much else, a bunch of trees. I think one of the things that helped, whilst there is a lot of fantastic effects in this film, all of the cast really sell it like they look horrified Mm. and there's so much screaming in this film which i really picked up had to turn the volume down a little bit when i was re-watching they really sell it you know you i think now especially watching it you know in 2019 you can maybe see some of the joints but it i think it holds up really well it's their reaction that makes it wholly convincing and i think they do such a good job in what looks like maybe quite an intense shoot in such a small location (laughs) i agree apparently their production office was the house from The Color Purple. Oh, really? So they shot it in the same area of uh, America where they shot The Color Purple, and that sort of white, painted white house from that movie is where their production office was based. I sound like an expert, but I just read this on Wikipedia last night. <laughs> and they shot it in a school gymnasium. Amazing. Yeah. 
we they must have made a serious mess. The amount of like gallons of blood that are being sprayed around and gunge and gore. And another thing they did is they made the blood different colors in order to try and avoid an R rating, ah. which is something they do in, of course, Flash Gordon as well, mm. where Clytus uh, bleeds black blood and some of the lizard men bleed green blood in order to keep it PG. But I think they failed. I think <laughs> the sheer quantity of blood pushed them into an R. In terms of the structure of this, I quite like how we go from, you know, Ash going through quite a horrific thing to Ash being on his own for a while. And I think they come into the cabin just at the right time to sort of let Ash um, well, take the pressure off him a little bit, but also to move the film forward. Because we, we get into a bit of a Ash playing with various bits that he can do by himself, yeah. his hand and all that sort of stuff. Well, the pace is very good, isn't it? Because you mm. can really tire out an audience, even in even in 80 whatever minutes it is. Absolutely. You could exhaust an audience, but the pacing's really good. The sort of peaks and troughs, the bits where it accelerates, the bits where it's calm. It's constantly throwing new inventive stuff at you, but it's not sort of obnoxious or exhausting. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that really makes it so superior. And you can see why he's gone on to be such a such an important and brilliant director of such huge movies, because his respect for the audience and his control of the pace and stuff is all on display there, don't you think? I think absolutely. I think this is like, you know, it's, it's not fair to call it a showreel because it's way more than that, but he shows his whole range and he can do so many, many things. Mm. So it makes sense that he, you know, can do a Wizard of Oz film for Disney and he can do a Spider-Man film and he can do, you know, some of his more, like, Dark Man and, you know, some of his more closer to maybe his own style mm. stuff, but on a bigger platform. I met him a few times with Edgar. We went to a party at his house. Oh, wow. Was it a 4th of July party? It was a good party. The Coen brothers were there. I talked to the Coen brothers. They'd seen Attack the Block, which was very rewarding. And he had fantastic oranges, Sam Raimi. <laughs> Delicious orange grove. Sent us home with a bunch of oranges. What a we nice also guy. visited him on the set of Spider-Man 2, Edgar and I. So that was interesting to watch him direct. Very, very sweet, personable, kind friendly man exactly like you'd hope him to be we are the things that were and shall be again <laughs> snaps of the book we want what is yours life <laughs> dead by dawn dead by dawn dead by dawn dead by dawn Sam Raimi's gone off and he's done very, very huge, huge Hollywood films, but it feels like Evil Dead is still something that a lot of people associate with him and something that people are sort of fan of. Like, they're still making the, the TV show Ash vs. the Evil Dead, and there was a, a sequel after this and then a remake and stuff. Uh, why do you think Evil Dead has had this long life? Well, I don't know, because it's really good. Because <laughs> it's really, it's pretty unique. Mm. And it's really, really good. It's true. It's been. I think it's the most one of the most reissued movies ever. Like in terms of the, especially the first one, in terms of all the different editions it's available in, like like rubbery Book of the Dead versions and yeah, because it's so dense with invention and technique and character, it's a real Pandora's box of entertainment, isn't it? Because there's so much beyond the film. Just thinking about how they did it. Yes. And then there's so much interesting cultural history attached to the first one, particularly in this country. Like I say, it has such a sort of aura around it for my generation anyway, because of the 
the controversy it caused and how difficult it was to see. It becomes this sort of unicorn-like figure in, in, in the film world, you know. Yeah. Have you seen it? No, I can't get hold of it. Yeah, a little bit like Clockwork Orange used to be. Mm. This sort of thing that you have to, you had to make a real effort to see it. So you committed to it in a way that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have to f with a film these days. With The Evil Dead, the f with the first movie, it was, can you deal with this? Mm. That's what it felt like to me as a kid. Are you, uh, I, Hereditary had a little bit of this. Oh, that's true, yes. But are you, are you robust enough to endure this, to get through to the other end of this? Yeah, I think the last film that had that was probably Hereditary. But it is sort of a challenge to the audience, really. You know, can you handle this film? And uh, I mean, Hereditary uh, terrified me, so it sort of worked. <laughs> there. But it's sort of lost. I mean, both Evil Dead 2 is no longer grueling, is it? No, it doesn't uh, feel grueling. It's just intensely entertaining. There's way more than 84 minutes worth of entertainment in this film. Like it, it delivers in, in, in spades. And I've actually never seen this film in the cinema and I would love to. But every time I've seen it at home, I've always had a good time. Yeah. Worth seeing at the cinema because the sound is so good. The sound work is really, really, really good. Just the noises those things make. A lot of it is Sam, I think, as well. I think he does really? the voice of the Amazing. hand. Yeah. <laughs> and the way they layer up. All those terrifying groany noises. Like, sound is a very key aspect to horror films, right? Absolutely. And I think you're right. I mean, seeing it in a cinema makes total sense when you can play with the space. Yeah. The sounds behind you. And Plus, it's a dark movie. It's set at night. So, so to see it in a dark room, mm. projected rather than on a TV screen, you're just going to get contrast levels and you're going to get colors and tonality that you, that you just wouldn't get on a telly. Because of the nits. Do you know what a nit is? I have no idea what I'm is. not sure I know what a nit is, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it's a unit of ambient light. Okay. Which really matters in projection. And then, of course, if you're watching a telly, it's all backlit anyway. Yes. So you, it's like you're staring into a light bulb. Plus just the atmosphere, the size of the image. The collective experience. Yeah, the, uh, the, the sort of the you know the communal experience with your your neighbours. Yeah. When you first saw Evil Dead Two, and, and there's that ending, that incredible ending where the portal opens. Mm. We have the demon in the house, mm. and everything gets sucked through the portal, and Ash goes back in time. Do you remember how you sort of felt about that at the time, and then you know, when the sequel eventually came out? I, to be honest with you, I think I was just very. I was just probably in such an incredible. Just pleasure bubble <laughs> and pleasure bubble, pleasure a bubble. It was, I just felt very happy <laughs> yeah. through the whole thing. It's such a fantastic ending. What a great ending. I get confused by the ending of Evil Dead 3 because there's so many different ones. Yeah. And I don't like that in a movie. I, I, I don't like the sense that there's a different way of doing it. I like to know what the ending is, but it really delivers that ending. And it's really beautifully staged when it pulls back from Ash and all those hands mm. pop up in the foreground. And it's also a, just the production value never stops giving, does it? You've got all these medieval knights, or this that crazy winged demon who, of again, course, yeah. we do a sort of version of in The Kid Who Would Be King. You've got, like, is he... Yeah, it, it's just, it just keeps on giving. And then it ends really abruptly on that sort of cliffhanger ending. It's so good. There we have it. Evil Dead 2 is in the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. Hooray! Thank you very much, Joe. Uh, so as part of the fictional 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival, mm. we will get all of these films uh, and the people who select them into a cinema. How would you like to present Evil Dead 2 to an audience? 
I suppose I might like to try and bring back the horror and try and strip away the comedy in terms of people's perception of it. Mm -hmm. So I might maybe prepare a little audiovisual presentation that would take people back to the to, to the eighties, you know, to the early and mid eighties, and try and put them back into the mindset that the public or teenagers like me were in at that age. Bit of James Furman, mm -hmm. who was the head of the BBFC at the time. Bit of Mary Whitehouse. Some ridiculous Daily Mail headlines. <laughs> just a dip in the toe of of what you know, because the guys from Palace Pictures, Steve Woolley and Nick Powell, mm. they worked incredibly hard and invested a huge amount of money defending this movie and defending themselves from these repeated public prosecutions, because the Obscene Publications Act could be applied by any chief constable in any area in London. So it wasn't just one trial for the Evil Dead one. Oh, wow. It was multiple trials in loads of different regions in Britain. And Sam Remy came over here to try and defend it. I, I know Steve Woolley and Nick Powell went to all kinds of different court cases. Eventually, the whole thing was thrown out mm. as being a ridiculous waste of public money. But for several years, it was... It was all over the shop and it was regarded by certain sections of the public as, as like really dangerous. It's crazy. Corruptive it? and dangerous. So I'd like to try and get people back into that mindset so you had a bit of the sense of, of adventure that we felt going into the Scala that evening in 1987. Take people back in time. Yeah. Can properly contextualize this film for an audience. Yeah, to get that sense of real danger, risk, and horror. And then to be greeted by something so joyfully inventive and funny was very memorable, memorable and cool. Maybe at the entrance of the cinema, use some dry ice and some fans, sort of make people. Well, that would through. be good, wouldn't it? To have um, <laughs> to have just yeah, to have smoke rushing past the exit door, so you felt like you were on that speeding, grueling horror train. If you could have one special guest from the film over, would who would you invite? Well, I would. Uh, who I I try and get. Sam over or I, any of them for God's sake I mean Bruce would be amazing mm. I'm using their Christian names as <laughs> if they're friends which is um, false impression I'm giving who was the guy that wrote it? Uh, it Scott Spiegel? That's right he's really good on the commentaries the commentaries on those DVDs are really really good I, we, I'd be lucky to have any anybody you know Greg Nicotero who is an effects wizard mm, he would be yes. good any of them would be good. It'd be fascinating. Really, mm. really fascinating. And what we like to ask at the end of this podcast, do you think this film could or should be longer than 90 minutes? No, I think it's the perfect length. I think that's a fair response. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally agree. I think I think this, you know, what they pack into that runtime is part of how powerful this film is. And I think it needs that pacing, you know. It's kind of like the momentum is, is it starts pretty fast and then it gets better and better and better and bigger and bigger and bigger as it goes along so you wouldn't want any extra padding uh, in this no and one of the cool things about it is you can really enjoy each shot mm. like each shot is a carefully thought out little nugget of invention and it doesn't i mean obviously it has those amazing traveling shots mm. but every time it cuts it's a new proposition right because there's very little dialogue in it. Yes, it's 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 mostly visual storytelling, and then it's it's not it's not the cuts aren't massively fast, but it's just every shot is a new, clever trick. 
feels like every every scene or every shot sort of fully explores the space it takes place in. Yes. And I quite like that. You know, whether if you're on the floor with the hands, then you're seeing the world from that point of view, or if you're in the tool shed with the chainsaw, or in the, yeah. in the basement with the But then with it's Henrietta. so resourceful <laughs> and, and clever. Like when he stabs, I think he's stabbing his own hand or the severed hand, but then it tilts up to his face mm. to see the splat of blood. And just that single shot, you imagine the guy on the left with the little spray of blood, mm. the person operating the mechanical hand, the camera, the timing, them all going one, two, three, dunk, then lift, then tilting the camera up to get to Bruce's face. And just the timing, it's like an amazing sort of clockwork device. It's, it's such a pleasure to watch. Absolutely. I would I would love to see, you know, just a fly on the wall of them actually making this and setting those shots up and seeing the time it must take to reset after some of the more yeah. know, sort of bigger set pieces. <laughs> it, it feels like it feels like if somebody made a film like this now, it would be it could have an equal impact. Just cause just cause it's so clever. Yes. And and that level of practical invention would feel so fresh in the current mm. environment, like if you could think of an idea as tight and punchy and good as this and pull it off with that same level of creativity, I think it would probably be a success, don't you? Absolutely. I think people want um, spectacle on screen. It doesn't have to just be, you know, a large format picture with lots of CGI mm. and, and explosions. It could actually just be a tightly choreographed action scene mm. like we see in Evil Dead mm. uh, with, you know, so many things having to happen on cue. And someone as great as Bruce Campbell who can mm. pull that all off. Then if you, could get it, if you could get it banned, <laughs> then you'd really be talking. Well, thank you so much, Joe, for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. Evil Dead 2. Where can people find out what you're up to on, on the internet these days? Well, thanks for asking that, Sam. And you're asking that because I have, like, last week... I started an Instagram page, Mr. Joe Cornish, and I feel slightly ill about the whole thing. I just did it for fun. I've never had any internet presence ever before. And in fact, all I was talking to Louis, my friend Louis and Adam the other day, and they're both discussing pulling out really, right? <laughs> of all social media, just as I dip a toe in. I just thought it would be fun to post a whole lot of behind the scenes photos and archive stuff I've got from my films and stuff. So yeah, that's that's my sole internet presence. And at time of recording, I think I've been, I think it's about seven days old. I haven't publicized it in any way. You're supposed to hashtag other people's. There's lots of rules. There's lots of rules. I can't be bothered. <laughs> but as a result, I think I've got 304 followers. But they're very special followers. I feel very covetous of them. So that's where you can find weird business from me apart from that you're in trouble there's nothing well i highly recommend checking out your instagram page especially if, if you've seen joe's films listeners because you've got some really great behind the scenes stuff and the kid who will be king is out now on dvd blu-ray and 4k uhd blu-ray is that what they call them yes Ultra sir hd got a very good review on my favorite site blu-ray.com oh, i love blu-ray.com yeah that guy's really good mm. and we work hard on that sound mix we you know work hard on the movie in general but particularly on the atmos mix and it got a really nice review from that website. Thank you, Joe. And thank you, listeners, for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. If you like, it'd be very nice. Uh, as a new independent podcast, it really helps. And thank you to everybody who has rated us already. 
we are doing our first live show at London Podcast Festival on 14th of September in King's Cross. Tickets are on sale now. Check the show notes for details. We'll be joined by special guests Helen Zoltzman and Martin Ostwick from Answer Me This, The Illusionist and Song by Song Podcasts. And finally, you can contact us on social media also uh, at 90minfilmfest on Twitter and Instagram. And we have a website with transcripts of the episodes at 90minfilmfest.com. The show is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. Uh, the show is edited by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick. And our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks again, Joe. See you later. Bye.